Well, last week, if you were here, let me just say, uh, did you go home beat up? Did you feel like you'd lost a little dignity? Because, I mean, come on, we looked at it. We looked at Romans 5, and we looked at you are what? You're a hussy. That's the best I could come up with. If you haven't looked at it, you're going to have to go back. Don't question me after the service. But you were helpless, ungodly, sinner enemies of God. And how does that make you feel? Now, there's only one thing here. He was speaking to the church, and it, you, you were helpless, ungodly, sinning enemies. Did you feel like you... Uh, and then the language about animal instincts and all this kind of thing. Well, does that not continue to bear itself out? Even this last week, animal instincts, is it not just animal instincts that, and tribalism and many other things that begin to emerge in our own country? With political parties, with ideologies, with black, white, with... I mean, is that not what you're seeing? We were dead in our transgressions and sins. And if you don't know yet Jesus and have the Holy Spirit residing in you, you may be offended by it, but you are yet spiritually dead. You may consider yourself a good person, but you are spiritually dead. That's the biblical language. And I know that makes you feel like uh, you've lost your dignity. And in fact, quite frankly, the law is what allows us to realize that we don't have the dignity that God wants for us to have. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul's very explicit when he says the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation. He's talking about the law itself. It makes us recognize our own depravity, our own spiritual deadness. I think it just makes us recognize that we are the problem. We are the rabble rousers. We are the mutinous rebels. It is us. I've seen the problem, and it is me, and it is inside my heart. And until I'm reconnected with the creator of the cosmos through his son Jesus, I am yet dead. I may try as hard as I can. You know, there's an interesting show playing uh, uh, an episode. I didn't know if it would make it a season. Uh, I don't know what you call it. Uh, what do you call them? Series, yeah, series on TV called The Good Place. I don't know if you've ever come across it. Ted Danson, you know, the old Cheers guy. Now he's gotten a little bit older, and now he is an immortal being, and it is all about the lever of going good or bad. Are you good or bad? And then you go to the good place, you go to the bad place, and, or the go to the medium place. And uh, it's, the, it's a cry out of our culture to say, look, we need moral direction, but they don't know how to achieve it. And if you're still spiritually dead, you may be able to alter your behavior, but you can never do anything to your heart. Ezekiel promised this very clearly. God through the prophet Ezekiel hundreds of years in advance of Jesus. I'm going to put a new spirit in them and I'm going to give them a new heart. Speaking specifically about the nation of Israel, but then the downline of that, they would then be a light to the nations and give us a new heart. I need a new heart. And I don't get a completely new heart when I come to Jesus. I get a heart that is now operated on, and it takes a long time and a long work of sanctification. My surgery is ongoing. I still look at my heart, and I recognize deficit. But there's something different. As we saw last week, there is an internal ability that is there now. I have resources, and and his name is the Holy Spirit. I have resources. Prior to that, I didn't have any resources, and that's what we looked at last week. But you know, the Bible doesn't just leave us without dignity. It has a a narrative that gives us our dignity back. Can you imagine this language? A co-heir with Christ. Ruling and reigning for all of eternity with Christ. Sonship, adoption, part of the family. So you may have this level of dignity in your own mind, pre-Jesus, And then you feel like you come and the Bible just wipes you out. The law just wipes you out and you feel like I have no dignity. Maybe that's the way you left the service last week. I just feel like I don't have, I'm offended by this. I, I don't know if I can buy this. But the Bible doesn't leave you there in Christ, which is what we've seen over and over in chapter 1 of Ephesians. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, you now move not to a place that you were, whatever level of dignity you may think you had. It multiplies it exponentially a trillion plus times and now seats you with Christ in heavenly places. That's just too good to, that's too good to be true. I sat with our, uh, some of our board this week uh, and I was tasked with the devotional for our national board yesterday morning. 
And I said, sometimes when I think of the, the, the grandeur of our cosmos, and you hear me talking about it a lot, I just, I, I'm fascinated with it. I'm always thinking about it. And I was talking to Tess in the car, my 13-year-old, the other day, and we were talking about it. I said, how, how fast do you think light moves? She says, probably really fast, like 200 miles an hour. <laughs> and for her, that's really fast. And I said, keep going, 186,000 miles, a second. Light travels eight times around the earth in one second. I said, can you imagine? I said, look at those mountains over there. How long would it take for light to get from here to there? You can't even, it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second. How big do you think we are? How, fa- how long do you think now, knowing what you know about the speed of light, how long do you think it would take for light to cross just the Milky Way galaxy that we know about, the galaxy that we live in? Oh, maybe, I don't know, a few days. Probably it's so big. Try 100,000 years just to get across our galaxy. And we live sometimes billions of light years away from other galaxies. And, oh, yeah, there are two trillion other galaxies. Can you get your head around that? I cannot. And you will always hear me talk about that. Anytime I think about trying to describe the grandeur of God, it falls so far short unless we look at the creation. And that wasn't even hard for him. He spoke it into existence. And somehow, thousands of years later, through modern technology and our ability to, and the science community and the birth of science, many by believers, by the way, Bacon and others, many of these guys were Kepler, all these guys, believers, lovers of Jesus, look out and just go, oh my gosh, who are we dealing with here? And it did start in a moment. With a spoken word. That's who we're dealing with. Now do you think to be called a temple of the living God, as Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You are a temple of the living God. So as I was speaking to the board in the devotional, I said, it almost challenges my faith. Because whatever that power is out there, to say that that power who created that kind of a cosmos lives on the inside of me, I don't know if I can buy that. And yet experientially, now having walked with Jesus for 25 plus years, no, it's real. It's absolutely experientially real. Not just theologically valid, experientially real. And many of you have experienced it. And some of you have not yet experienced it. Though you may have experienced religion. Jen Hedinga, who in his book Follow Me, says, you know, it's fascinating to me. He says, religion is one of the greatest hiding places you'll ever find to get away from actually experiencing God because you feel like everything's copacetic. But in fact, it can be a great hiding place. And that can be Christianity or otherwise, whatever you, however, whatever terms you want to use. I want you, I want us to become a thriving organism that's connected to the head, a body that's connected to the head, who is Jesus. And you have to be connected. Not just because you go through religious protocol, but because you have a thriving, dynamic, religious? No, a thriving, dynamic relationship with the Creator through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's trying to get to here. And he describes it. And, and we look, especially the first 10 verses. So, again, just in summary of last week, those first 10 verses of chapter 2 give us the reason why chapter 1 was possible. Being adopted, foreordained, predestined to adoption. To be experienced, verse 3 of chapter 1, the spiritual blessings of the Creator. To be brought into the family. How's all that possible? Well, let me tell you the process. Paul kind of goes back and then says, okay, you ready? You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working in sons, the sons of disobedience. So last week, I hope we were able to establish the biblical accuracy from beginning Genesis to the end of Revelation, that you were dead, okay? Kaput, we said. But now I'm just going to take one tiny step forward. As we do, we'll actually be taking a couple of steps back. I want you, if you will, to go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. 
This, this runs so at much at the core, and again, I've used this terminology over the last few weeks. These are really the moorings of your Christian faith. He said, these are deep theological principles. I don't really need this. Just give me, just give me something. That is the culture in which we live. Just give me a pill so I can get healthy. Just give me something. We don't realize that it takes deep theological thinking, and that's why Jesus said, you've got to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We have to apply our mind to what we're experiencing possibly in terms of worship right there. I don't know how you felt during that last worship song, but I... It's one of the greatest times of the whole week. I hope you get here earlier so you can experience the worship. You know? Just, just come. It's one of the greatest moments because we just, for, for a little bit, I don't have to think about me. I can think about him completely and utterly and, and do it collectively. And it's awesome. Romans chapter 9 really answers this question. Are we still culpable? If we were dead, how do we have culpability? I know we've looked at that a couple of weeks, but... This is the one passage that I didn't refer to that I think you need in your toolkit of understanding. So Romans chapter 9, let's start here in verse 10. Or I was just in Texas, 10. All right, go to verse 10. Romans chapter 9, and I, and I say that all lovingly because I have to know that language when I go to Texas because my parents speak it. 10. Oh, 10, 10, 10. Okay, so verse 10. This is the context of Israel and their inability to see a veil over their eyes, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Paul says, I'd give up my own salvation for my brothers in the flesh. I give it up. They can't see it. But how are they culpable? God, God loved Jacob hated Esau. How's that fair to Esau? Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Well, how's he culpable if God hardened his heart? This is what Paul digs into. So in verse 10, this is not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins. By one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, In order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of what they did, their works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Before they were born, it had already been predetermined the older is going to serve the younger. And that's a big deal in that culture because the firstborn was everything. Just as is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? You can, you can hear the, the rhetorical language here. Paul is like, what, what are we going to do about this? He says, there's no injustice with God, is there? Because that's the indictment, isn't it? Well, there's injustice with God. How can he hate Esau? What chance does Esau have? What chance will Pharaoh have if he hardens his heart? What possible thing could happen in Pharaoh's heart? How is he culpable? That's what he's really getting to. He says, may it never be. Of course God's not unjust. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So you can understand our five-point Calvinist friends. You were dead means you didn't have anything to do with it. But wait a minute. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. But you will then say, and I've had a lot of you say this to me over the last few weeks, you will then say, well, why does he still find fault? Because who possibly can resist God's will? And then Paul's you want, it, you want Paul to button this thing up right here, don't you? Well, give us the answer. Just tell us what to believe. And he says, on the contrary, who are you, O man? You are a creature. You have personhood, but you are a creature at the same time. That's the paradox. A creature is totally dependent, instinctual. 
Who are you to answer back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, now here's where he finishes it, and he does not button it up. He just says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now, he just says, what if? You don't know what God did in and around Pharaoh's heart and life. And because he's not subject to time and space, he was doing, but he was already hated before he was born because God's not subject to time. He can see the whole thing. And that's where, our, that's where we will never get it. It feels like a foregone conclusion, but what Paul says, how do you know that he didn't suffer a long time with these vessels prepared for destruction? That's the point, and that's why I say, we, though we were dead, we are still culpable. That's what I get from Romans 9 here. Well, how do you know that? And I, I would say everyone, as they stand before or fall before the Creator at the end of time to give an account or to, to hear the verdict because they rejected Jesus and His grace-filled gospel of the kingdom, uh, they will all say that nobody will say that was a ripoff. That's unfair. That's unjust. Paul goes as far as to say every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, regardless of whether you accepted him or rejected him. There will be a moment of transparency to say, yeah, God, even though I may have not been that close to you, you dealt with me in the jungles, because people, contemporary people think, well, what about those people? And what about those people? And people reject God because of the question of, well, what about those people? God's just, God's the judge, God's love, and everything will be exactly just. And that's what Paul said. Is there injustice to be found with God? May it sometimes be. No, may it never be. God is perfectly just. Every man and woman, I believe, to the degree that it is. Now, will they have an explication? Will they have it completely laid out? Like here at Church at the Red Door, the gospel each week, hopefully in a, a, a relatable, clear way. That's our goal anyway, between the pastors. I mean, that's our, that's our goal. Pastor Paul did a, a, a sermon not long ago on the, the pill, you know, the, the red pill or the blue pill. I mean, it, well, over and over, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an invitation into that. Well, what about the guy that never hears? Well, that's between him and, the, him and God. What about Jacob? What about, well, no, excuse me, what about Esau? What about Pharaoh? Trust me, God's got it handled. Unjust? May it never be. Culpable? Yes. Preordained before the foundations of the world? Absolutely. This is where uh, Anthony Hoekman, which I, phenomenal, created in God's image. It's a little, it's a little, uh, deep waiting. But I love what he says about this difficulty in understanding that we are both creature, totally dependent, created by God, and yet we have personhood, created in the image of God. Listen to what he says. In some, the human being is both a creature and a person. You know, some people say, well, you know, we're not nothing like the animal kingdom. Well, we're a lot like the animal kingdom in some ways. Peter even used that, and we used that language last week. Those like unreasoning animals. It doesn't mean we're animals. It just means we are like, at times, when we're spiritually dead, like unreasoning animals. Can you not see that from the week behind us? Motivated by instinct and impulse. No resources to fight that urge. None. We are both creature and person. He or she is a created person. Now, this is the central mystery of man. How can man be both a creature and a person at the same time? To be a creature, as we've seen, means absolute dependence on God. To be a person means relative, relative independence, and I would say culpability. To be a creature means that I cannot move a finger or utter a word apart from God, absolutely true. But to be a person means that when my fingers are moved, I move them, absolutely true. It's a paradox. And then when words are uttered by my lips, I utter them. 
To be creatures means that God is the potter and we are the clay. He alludes to Romans 9 here. To be persons means that we are the ones who fashion our lives by our own decisions. Galatians 6, as a man sows, so shall he or she reap. Those are decisions we make and cause and effect that we are the causal element in that. And then lastly, I have called this the central mystery of man because to us it seems deeply mysterious that man can be both a creature and a person at the same time. That's kind of what we're dealing with this last few weeks. It's hard. Dependence and freedom seem to us to be incompatible concepts. We grant that a child is completely dependent on his or her parents in infancy, but we note that as the child develops in the direction of greater freedom and maturity, the child becomes less dependent on his or her parents. This we can understand, but how are we to conceive of a relationship to which complete dependence on God and personal freedom to make our own decisions continue to go hand in hand? How are we to do that? And he just concludes with this, though we cannot rationally comprehend how it is possible for the human being to be both creature and person at the same time, Clearly, this is what we must think. I love that. And with a guy with a lot more pedigree than me, Anthony Hoikma, one of the great theologians of our day. Denial of either side of this paradox will fail to do justice to the biblical picture. The Bible teaches both man's creatureliness and man's personhood. So hopefully we can kind of put a button on that, but I think it's important because we he comes back to this foundation that you were dead. All right, I was dead. It wasn't my fault. He, he saved me. He did. You're culpable. How can we? This can't be what? It's both. It's biblical. Just deal with it. Right? It's hard. And I say, you deal with it. I'm saying, I got to deal with it. And I'm, and I'm comfortable in the tension now to understand that there's a God that understands more than I do and is still perfectly loved and perfectly just. So let me ask you a question as we go to this next portion. According, you, you, this is how you used to walk. Back to Ephesians 2, verse 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Okay, we've established that. In which you formerly walked. If you're still walking there, you can come into the kingdom today. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's always an invitation here at Church at the Red Door. If you don't know. Or if you're online or you're a live streamer or YouTuber or whatever. Hey, you can just get down on your knees right now and say, Father, I believe that you're God and that your son died for me and, and, and I want to follow you and welcome to the kingdom. It happens in a moment's time. You were dead. If you're dead now, you don't have to be dead when you walk out those doors. It's as simple as that. You bring nothing to the table. It's all him. It says, in which you formerly walked according to the course, some say natural course, or the course of this world. How does this world operate? Well, this is a picture of Hong Kong, I believe. You know, it's kind of the preeminent place right now. Well, it's really emerged over these last, you know, couple of decades. Uh, property values are higher in Hong Kong. I mean, I wonder what goes on as I look off into the city, and I wonder what goes on with all these high rises and everything. I wonder, I wonder what the natural course of this world is. Got to do better for myself. Got to make, got to make a lot of money. Got to, got to be secure. I want to be able to vacation, do what I want. I want to be independent. I want, you know, just on and on and on and on. That's just natural. Nobody has to know God to know that. That just happens. Or I, I, I feel like that I'm underprivileged, so I'm just going to bury my, uh, my. I'm going to take on a victim mentality, and I'm just going to be an addict or something like that. I'll just, I'll just embrace that life. I'm, I'm a victim. This is a, a, a world of haves and haves-nots, and, then, and that's a natural course, too, for some. You know, power, sex, money, you know, we all want it. If we don't have it, we may rebel. We may re resort to, again, tribalism or something, but that's the natural course. That's how you used to walk, according then to the prince of the power of the air. And then it goes on to say, in the, in the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So it, there's a spirit behind this, and we should know a little bit about what he references here, the prince of the power of the air. I'm not going to do it exhaustively, but I think it's important. If you do have your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We looked at this briefly before. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Let's just give ourselves a little bit of a backdrop to who the prince of the power of the air is. How is he referenced in the Bible? 
It says, in whose case the God of this world, that world right there, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of the Messiah, which is all Christ means, the Messiah, the anointed one, who is the image of God. So what does the God of this world do? I don't believe in that stuff. It's fairy tales. I mean, watch, you know, all these current stuff, Big Bang Theory and all this, uh, all the millennials kind of watch that. That was their, that was their Seinfeld or their Cheers or their MASH or their, I love Lucy, depending on how old you are, but you keep going back, you know, in time. And, and that, that's their, what they watch. And, and I've, I never watched any of it. And then I became fascinated with it because it's the, it's the spirit of our age. Shelton, the, the guy on here who's this brilliant, incredible mind, and he has a mother who's a Christian back in Texas. And he talks about her mythology, and he talks about this. And, and she comes across, occasionally there's loving moments between the two of them, and he does love her, but she lives in her myth. And, and this is just perpetuated over and over and over and over. And, and if you are a, a Bible-believing, inerrant Bible-believing follower of Jesus, which I am, and then you go into that public sphere, you will be mocked. You will be made to feel stupid because who doesn't, I mean, don't you realize we're past that elf fairy tale junk from thousands of years ago? We've pressed past it. Well, that's just another device in our culture and in our time. It was not always that way. But since the Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment world, it's been increasing that science is now the answer to all things. And we will get in here, uh, we will get more deep into that, I think, as we get into the new year. So he blinds the mind of the unbelieving. Okay, that's either true or not true. He either exists or he doesn't exist. I'll also go to John chapter 12, the Gospel of John, three different times. John 12, verse 31. John chapter 12, verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world, that world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So now is this casting out of heaven or is this casting out of the world or what, who's being cast out where? And this gets very complicated. In fact, it's actually a theological sticking point for some people. Do you remember, I believe it was Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sends out the 70 to go out and, you know, heal the sick and proclaim the gospel, the kingdom is at hand, etc. And they come back and they're all excited because the demons are subject to them and their, their name. And Jesus, the Bible says, began to, if you really get into the Greek here, dance ferociously in the spirit. I don't know what that looked like. But maybe Jesus did a little jig, you know. I don't know what that looks like from a Hebrew perspective. But he did a little jig because he was so. And then he says, Father, I thank you that you didn't reveal this to the wise and the intelligent. But to babes, I looked and I saw Satan falling from heaven like lightning. So the question is, was Satan falling from heaven as they shared the gospel? Now, that was all most interpretation. I think most theologians would say Jesus is just looking back to the moment in time in which Satan fell and fell from heaven and is now on earth. And now he's being taken over by their activity on earth. I don't think he's saying Satan's in heaven as they share the gospel. He falls out of heaven. I think most theologians, not all though, but there is some debate about this, but I think he's looking back historically and he says, I see Satan, his fall, because, you know, Jesus was there. I see his fall, and now he's falling again. In some ways, he's being cast out again. And one day there's coming where he will be completely cast out. And that's why heaven will be heaven. John chapter 14, verse 30. John chapter 14, verse 30. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler of this world is coming Jesus speaking here and he has nothing in me what does that mean that he has nothing in me he has no footstool no place in my heart I am the unblemished lamb can any of us say that no none of us can but we have the unblemished one living on the inside of us now and somehow these coexist the unblemished one through the power of the Holy Spirit and our our blemishes that still exist, though we are saved by grace through faith, we're still in process. And Paul describes that elsewhere in Romans 7, over and over. Uh, these two things are living on the inside of me. It's, it's kind of tearing me apart. It's hard. It's the kind of the, the culture would say, a little angel on this side and a little devil on this side. Well, it's more than that. It's two natures that are battling on the inside of you. But now you have the resources to overcome. Before you were dead, you had no resources to battle what was inside of you. So real true Christianity, bottom line is that the Holy Spirit lives in you. Or he doesn't. 
Check yourself to see if you're in the faith. How would you check yourself? Does the Holy Spirit reside in me? How do you receive the Holy Spirit? Believe in the gospel, repent, believe in the gospel, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the seal, the indication that you are saved. John chapter 16, verse 11. So Jesus is using this language. He says, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So the ruler of this world, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Are you starting to get a picture of, you know, so the spirit that happens here, the, just the natural course is being dominated by an overarching spirit. And that's why if you don't have a biblical narrative in your mind, you're so aghast at how all this negative racial, tribal, blah, 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 yuck that happens in the earth. And you just, and so what happens is people come very vociferous. And I think that's why you've, you've elevated the language within politics today to a level of deep, deep hatred and divide. It's because they don't have any resources to be able to talk about an antidote other than this. And so many of you maybe say, well, I'm on this side or I'm on this side. I don't care what side you're on, you're going to jump in bed with some interesting characters, let's just say. Politics is not the answer. It's necessary, but it's not the ultimate answer. To fight the ruler of this world and to cast him out, we need the truth and transparency of the gospel, period. So how about the prince of uh, Matthew chapter 9, verse 34, Matthew 9, 34, if you're taking notes. But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, so they were aware that the demonic realm, I don't have time to get into it, but Revelation 12 and elsewhere, you see that a, a probably a third, if you interpret that that way, and I think most theologians do, a third of the angelic realm fell in this conspiracy that you see kind of played out in both Isaiah and Ezekiel before, time, before man was created. Uh, and so demons are just fallen angels, and the ruler of those demons is the ultimate fallen cherub, that was Satan himself, who was uh, part of the covering angel and had a very intimate relationship with the creator of the universe, although himself being a created being, which is very important to understand. You're not dealing with two powers. You're not dealing with dualism, good and evil, right? And they're equal and they're just back and forth like this. No, you've got God and you've got all the created beings and powerful, don't, don't, don't misunderstand me, but still a created being now fallen. That's all Satan is. So he's the ruler of the demons. So there is a hierarchical structure within the context of the demonic realm as there is in the angelic realm. And you may just write that off to myth and fairy tale, but I think the evidence around us is so compelling that you might want to reconsider. People are having experiences all the time. A voice spoke to me. I, I, I have this voice. I'm listening to this voice. You hear it over and over. People mass murder. They do. They go. They blow. They, you know, and you can feel this evil on the inside. And, and if you just have a narrative of just something, just a secular narrative, you don't even have the language to combat it. And what it ends up becoming is everything is a disease or, or a victim mentality. Everything becomes that because you just don't have any construct to which you're thinking that there is, there is a spirit now working in the sons of disobedience that is powerful over the minds and the hearts of the dead, spiritually speaking. Revelation 12 Excuse me, Mark, uh, verse, chapter 3, verse 22. Mark three twenty-two. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. And he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. So we've got ruler of the demons again. And, and then in summary, Revelation 12, 7 through 9. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. Michael and his angels being those non-fallen angels waging war with the dragon who certainly is Satan who is a fallen angel and a covering cherub, the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. So this happened prior to even mankind. This is not, and, and, and then verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He's a deceiver, blinding the minds. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So again, we get... A picture, And then finally, let's look here, that earth really is their prison. So they were thrown out of the heavenly realm, so to speak, or access to God's presence. 
and their new abode became earth. Oh, so that explains it, right? And it does. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, 2 Peter, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So you get this picture. So they were cast into. And then Jude chapter 6, excuse me, Jude verse 6, because there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude verse 6. Jude verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So there was a casting out of heaven, really, there, and their abode became earth, and in some way it is their prison. Okay? So this is, this is just language that we need to understand. So what is the spirit of the age? And that's where I want to really uh, get, what is that like? Well, we've talked about it. It's just people want what they want. Spirit of the age is I want what I want, and I'm going to do whatever I can. And I don't have to think. And the, the smarter ones don't have a heart difference. They just maybe do it in a more uh, stable way where they don't get thrown in prison or they don't, you know. But the heart issues are the same. I've, 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 some of you maybe heard me teach this, but, you know, there's a tendency to look into the inner city and say those animals, drive-by shootings and gangs and all this kind of stuff, and it's just horrible. Look at those. Those people, those are the bad people. We're the good people. That's, that's the environment I grew up in. That's what country club people think. And we've got a lot of country club people in this church and in this valley. And there's a tendency to look across the pond to another nation. Oh, look at those people. Good thing we're civilized. We're good people. Let me tell you something. I li- I've been at the country club my whole life. I grew up at the country club. I know that is my world. I, that's the world I know. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not proud of that or not. It's just where God placed me in life. And I can tell you, there are drive-by shootings behind the walls of the country club just as much as there are in the very inner city. But we do it slightly differently. We don't put out an, pull out an actual gun. We pull out our attorneys, and they come blazing. <laughs> right? And we're going to sue that guy into submission. And if we have more money than them, we'll keep them bound up in prison, so to speak, with lawsuits for the rest of their lives. Now, you tell me there's a heart difference. The outworking of it might seem different and uh, more animalistic, but to God, it's the same. It's the same things. Pride, jealousy, greed, anger, all of them. The four horsemen of the apocalypse of the heart, as Andy Stanley calls it, it's all the same. It's a heart problem. Maybe you can stay out of jail. Now, what's happened since 2008 is that finally the heart seems to be there, and now we've seen a lot that they weren't able to keep themselves out of jail. And we've seen a lot of CEOs go down and a lot of people. And I've told you before, I mean, I actually knew Mr. Ken Lay. And I was with him just weeks before all that went down. And I was, I was and still am friends, though I haven't seen him in a while, the president of the executive board of Enron. I really like Mr. Lay. I really did. But there was some shenanigans going on. And it was an indication of a heart issue. So... The spirit of the age, people just want what they want. So you grew up in a, in a country club or whatever, and you have a, a stronger ability to keep yourself out of jail. Well, congratulations. You still have a heart problem. And before God, you're no different than, than the Boko Haram or anything. They say, See, that's where people get offended. So when you talk about being dead spiritually, that's where people still delineate in the world. Good people, bad people. This says all people are bad people. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You all have a heart issue. You need a new heart. You need a new spirit. And the way that you can do that is through Jesus. Not through Christianity. Not through religion. Through Jesus. And if you want to call that Christianity later, that's fine. (laughs) Now I want to go, in closing here, I want you to go to John chapter 8. This encounter is, (laughs) this encounter still is wild. It's a wild encounter. Because he encounters many of the Jews of his day. And again, it's important that we don't have an anti-Semitic flair, which this church certainly doesn't. It is not all Jewish people. It is not all Jewish people. Some of the Jewish people. Many of the Jewish people embraced him. As a nation, as a whole, they rejected him. Paul says, towards the end of the redemptive history, 
all of Israel shall be saved. There's coming a day when Jews are going to see Jesus as their Messiah, I believe. I don't know that it'll happen in my lifetime, but we are in this, even in this church, we are seeing, we've got many Jewish people among you, and they're still Jewish. You don't have to say that they've converted. They just found the Messiah. Now they're more Jewish than they've ever been. You've heard me say that, and that's important. Because many Jewish people out there say, well, I've got to leave my Jewishness, and I've got to become a, a Gentile or, a, or something, and they have a picture of that. Wow, that's weird. It's weird. It's weird thinking. But we don't want to perpetuate that in any way. So John chapter 8, verse 33, with that as a backdrop, this is not anti-Semitic, some of the Jews. But listen to what they did. So they, and I will say some of the Jews, answered Jesus and says, Hey, look, we are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anybody. Because he had just told them that they're a slave. If you sin, you're a slave of sin. He says, How is it that you say you have become free? Because Jesus was saying they could become free in him. Jesus answered and said, Truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And that's why I said... Last week, both death and slavery are really for us synonymous here. If you're spiritually dead, you're a slave of sin. Okay? That's the outworking. And the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. Now, what we're learning from Ephesians is that you can become a son or a daughter. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. That's what's so wild. That's the dignity that is restored to you in the gospel. He says, if therefore the Son shall make you free, how free shall you be? Free indeed. I would just say very free, awesomely free, wonderfully free, truly free, truly dignified. Not a world dignity, a kingdom reality of godly dignity. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, and yet you seek to kill me. This is not challenging. When you see religious atrocities committed in the name of, I don't care what it's committed in the name of. If it's done in the name of religion, Jesus is clear. You, you need to have this for your toolkit. Are you ready? If an atrocity is committed in the name of anybody's God or anything else, they do have a God. And their God, as Jesus will make clear, is the prince of the power of the air. He says, look, you, you, I know that you're Abraham's offspring, and yet... You seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. You come to a deal like this and you hear the word and just you're just shaking your head. You can't wait to get up and get out of here. Or flip off or whatever. Flip off the channel is what I meant. Same same thing. (laughs) He says, I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Now, I love this. Jesus says, therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Now, it's going to get deep here. It's going to get deep. It's going to get caustic fast. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, well, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Well, what were the deeds of Abraham? He didn't have the law. He lived 500 years before the law. What would be the deeds of Abraham? He listened to the voice. And he went to a land that God would show him. He, wa- he had a faith walk. He couldn't have followed the law if he wanted to because there was no Mosaic law, not for another 500 years. So the deeds of Abraham were just obedience to the voice, which is where we're back to today. Be obedient to the voice. Legalism says be obedient to these rules and regulations of which we will construct in our church. No, that's legalism, and it happens in the Christian church too. If you want true freedom, listen to the voice and react and respond. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have but one father, even God. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. Because I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying to you? Well, I'll tell you why. Because you can't hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Now, many of these were religious Jews. And you say, well, those, yeah. But are we any different today? Does this message still carry into our culture? 
Well, I'm a very dignified person. I serve on this board. I serve on that board. I give money away. I do this. I do that. I'm involved in this. Jesus' words would be the same today. Look, you, you can claim my father all you want, but why? If you, you still desire to kill me or suppress me or suppress my words. I'm just telling you, you're an enemy. You're a helpless, ungodly, sinning enemy. Do you get that? You're a helpless, ungodly, sinning enemy. Jesus would come with the same message today. We reject you. Okay, you are of your father, the devil. You are still walking according to the natural course of this world, according to the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. the same thing. Well, they responded with great joy, the Bible says. He says, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, it's a lie. He speaks from his own nature. That's what I'm getting to here. That's, the, to me, the spirit of this world. It's a nature that is anti-Christ. I mean, some, some people are always looking for the anti-Christ. And they, and, and, don't, anti-Christ is anything that stands against Jesus as the Messiah. John says, 1 John says, there are already many antichrists in the world. We have a powerful, strong antichrist spirit in, this, in the United States today. But we always have. Maybe a little bit more evident today, but I'm just telling you, we always have. We've never been a Christian nation. We've been a, a nation of mixed backgrounds and people. And yeah, there were places where I'm very thankful for the theistic foundations of much and I know so many of our founding fathers were followers of Jesus and I think it's given us longevity and everything else but we've never been just a bunch of well I'm from the United States I'm a Christian therefore I'm a Christian I mean I think all of us could agree to that so in closing I would just go down here let's just we'll, we'll jump down to verse 57 the Jews therefore said to him you are not yet 50 years old and you say you've seen Abraham and Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, not I was, I am. Now, what do, you, do you think they understood that language? See, I hear this. It drives me crazy. In, in secular, I'll, I'll be watching something on History Channel or seeing some lecture on YouTube and seeing all these secular people. Well, we don't even know that Jesus claimed to be God. Jesus, in fact, never claimed to be God. I'm saying, you just don't know the scriptures. You just do not understand. I mean, it's just absurd. Right here, Jesus is saying, when he says, before Abraham was, I am. Well, if you don't know your Bible that well, I'll just tell you, what, what did Jesus, what did and, and this voice from the bush, the burning bush, say to Moses? Moses said, who, who shall I say sent me? Jesus said, tell him I am sent you. I just am. Just, I'm not created. I'm outside of time. I just, I'm first cause. I'm first cause. And their response, therefore, they picked up stones to stone him. That's blasphemy. They knew exactly. Levitical law says, you claim to be God, that's blasphemy. Unless you're telling the truth. And he was. So, I... This first, you know, as we see, can you see how deep these roots, these theological roots go in this first few ten verses? We'll get a little bit more next week as we get into this. Uh, we've talked a lot about it, and I won't go into it at great length, but we'll look at, you know, you were children of wrath. We talked about the wrath of God for three weeks. Um, and if you would like a little bit more on that, you can go. Uh, again, I don't know, some of you are new, but just, just to remember you can go on YouTube now, and there's podcasts. You can go on iPhone, hit podcasts, you can go to Church Red Door, and you just immense, immediately, the, the, let me, can we just give a round of applause for our AV guys back there, Randy, Pete, Steph, all, just unbelievable. People call and say, oh, you're doing this great job with AV and all that. I said, I got nothing to do with that. That's their ministry, and I tell those guys, that is their ministry. And now Stephanie just joined us and all the guys. That, and the setup and teardown that goes on to this place every week, can you imagine the work that they do? You are deeply indebted. Don't you exit this church without giving those guys a hug. <laughs> Take them to lunch one day. Grab one of them. They're incredible people. It's their ministry. It's not my ministry. I'm up here. I'd do this whether that was going on or not. It's their ministry. So all those things are available to you. All right, look, what do we do with this? We just, well, if you, if you are now no longer dead, and this applies to you, you were dead, you have reason to celebrate. Don't you? That's why we worship. That's why we worship. If you, look, if you, are you still dead? 
You may be struggling with that. Loss of dignity. You haven't lost your dignity. You never had it to begin with. From a spiritual perspective, God wants to give your dignity back times a trillion co-heir. Serve, rule and reign with him forever. Become part of the family of God. Not just his family, the eternal cosmic family of creator of the universe. Of which we will live forever and ever. And I think, I know there will be a new heavens and earth, but there will be a new heavens, not just a new earth. I believe we'll somehow have access to the whole cosmos. And who knows, Stephen Hawking might have been right. There might be even more universes that we don't even know about. Our God is that big. Would that be hard for him to do? We'll have all of eternity to figure it out. I'm going to ask Bob Thompson, one of our executive team members, to come up, if, if he wouldn't mind right now, and close us in prayer. We have, if you are going with us to Israel, I know there's only, uh, not all of you are here, we have a meeting upstairs afterward. And uh, this is a good man right here, by the way. I, I love bringing people up that you should get to know. If you're a recipient of the ambassador program this summer, that was Bob's idea. Uh, and his precious wife, Joan, they live up in uh, Oregon and Salem. And uh, he's, a, he's been an instrumental part of this church. He really has. And so I want him to close us in a powerful meaningful prayer (laughs) of which I have no doubt that people will be forever impacted by as I exit stage right. Love you, buddy. Thank you. Over here. Come over here in the light. Uh, Please, into the light. Do we have another video? Is there another video? No, you're the close. We're a little past time. Lord, thank you for these insights into the unseen world and help us to use this knowledge to serve you better in the seen world. Go with each one with blessing and love in Jesus' name. Amen.